if a team, a deal team, is very good at answering those questions, then you can kind of solve for some of these problems of like, well, how is everyone aligned? How are they incentivized? Who's going to own this decision moving forward? And those are 100% the kind of questions that need to be answered before day one. This is All Quiet on the Second Front, a podcast where boring conversations around defense tech and national security come to die. Join me, Tyler Sweat, and my Second Front comrades as we dismantle the mundane, cut through the bureaucratic BS to demystify the world of defense tech. But be warned, this is not a typical government podcast. Ready to get weird? This is a Soul Fire production. Hey, what's up, everybody? It's uh, your host, Tyler Sweat. Welcome to another episode of All Quiet on the Second Front, the podcast where boring defense talk comes to die. Gonna mix it up a little bit today. Get a little investor perspective on the uh, on the old market here. Uh, really excited to have Osborne first in joining us. Uh, so first, thanks for taking a little bit of time, brother. Absolutely, happy yeah. to be here. Heck yeah! So uh, we'll open a little bit. I've had the pleasure of getting to know you. I don't know if all of our listeners have. So who are you? Kind of give you a little bit of the story. What are you working on now? Sure. So I am actually a native of this area. I grew up in Arlington, Virginia, and. Went off to law school after college, graduated law school, was practicing in DC, but then had a couple buddies at the time who were going on their second and, and third deployment. This was in the 05, 06 timeframe. After the initial round of mission accomplished yeah. overseas. Spicy time to be overseas. Right. But, <laughs> but, then, but then things started going sideways and yeah. I figured that was the right time. In fact, the Marine Corps put out a program called the National Call to Service at the time. And so decided to leave that glass office there on K Street and uh, went down to Quantico, became an infantry officer in the Marine Corps. Okay. Did that for seven years, just absolutely remarkable. Coming out of that, decided not to go back into law from the kind of private practice side, but but to really help grow an organization from within as an attorney, but also just a you know general operator with the stuff I'd learned in the Marine Corps. And so it was great. I found a seed stage company that had just, just gotten financed in, in the DC area. They were doing something related to legislative and regulatory data, which I found fascinating and, and helped that team, the three founders there, grow that company and started doing a lot of M&A, which was great because the CEO and I really saw eye to eye on, on how to be able to grow it through that kind of strategy and did a number of deals there. After about six years, which were phenomenal, decided to join a emerging defense technology company, which at this point now we've all heard of, called Anderil. And it was just an absolutely world-class team there, still is, oh, yeah. and just, just a rocket ship. But one thing they hadn't really necessarily planned for or really, you know, it's just there's a lot going on, but a strategy they, ha they hadn't really considered too deeply was M&A. And so through some conversations there and some planning, we actually embarked on a series of, of acquisitions there, which were just absolutely not just good deals, but, but just a lot of fun, just yeah. incredible, you know, working with those people, working with the, especially the people at the companies that were acquired, just really just, and it was an incredible view into that kind of defense mid-market, if you will. And yeah, kind of took that knowledge and those insights and seeing the kind of patterns, you know, after working in various startups over about 10 years, decided to bring that to the investor side. And now working with, with just some amazing partners in, in building what we want to be, have become, you know, the premier security technology investment firm. Yeah. 
Uh, one, I mean, I love, I never say every time you tell me, I love the background. I love the story. Um, I also, as someone who was on the ground in Afghanistan in 2006 and seven, when the tide was turning, I appreciate you signing up and, uh, and jumping in. Yeah. I mean, it was an infantry officer. <laughs> and true. It was right. You got to leave. You got to actually do what the book say. It was incredible. Yeah, it was wild back then. Yeah. <laughs> a couple of places I want to take this conversation, because I think you've had these different experiences that give you a couple different lens by which you can see the market. I think most of us on the other side, maybe they've come up the operator side or folks have come up the investor side and there's maybe some obfuscation around what those lens look like. So I want to start sort of from the VC, from the investor side house, as you were thinking about sort of defense and security, sort of the, the prevailing wins in the market right now. I think it's been a very interesting, we'll call it last 36 months, sort of at the tail of like free cash, kind of the Oprah phase of venture capital investing, right? Like everybody got a billion dollar valuation. Then it went into nobody gets anything, right? And like the cost of capital completely inverted. You've had the launch of things like American dynamism and sort of like it's become fetched to have a defense thesis now. What does that mean? Like strip all of that down and start, you know, think about that sort of early stage, you know, seed kind of A around operator right now. What are you seeing in the market? What are you looking for? Or what are those attributes of a company that are giving you maybe the confidence or the conviction given the current market? Yeah, right on. You're, you're absolutely right. Defense tech, if you will, is enjoying quite the moment in kind of crazy macro environment, right? Uh, you, as, as you put it very well. So I don't have a sophisticated answer for this besides the fact I just look at the public comps, Yeah. right? And what we see, what really built that, say we invest with confidence and humility on the confidence side, it was just a mispricing, you know, that we see yeah. in the market at the early stage through the kind of like the middle stages of these private companies in a market that if you have the kind of situational awareness, right, of how this industry works and why, right? I know you've had some incredible guests on and talking about procurement and reform and defense acquisition, the acquisition process. And I mean, people much smarter than I working on making that better, which is, which is great. But as you've pointed out, there's real reasons why the market is shaped the way it is, you know, why you have this level of primes and integrators and why it looks the way it does. And so I am not an economics major, actually, as I said, I was an attorney, but, but something that I've seen my entire career we have the best crystal ball. It's called the market. Yeah. Right. Yep. Like there is that, I mean, that, you know, the ability to, to just see what's happening in real time is not a secret to anyone. So you look at some of these valuations of particularly kind of the smaller mid cap publicly traded, you know, they're industrials, some are def pure play defense, others are kind of, you know, C5 ISR, which I always thought was a very interesting acronym, but, but this kind of, you know, these segments of the defense industry writ large, these are actually pretty valuable companies on a multiples basis, right? So if you come in at an early stage and you find no, absolutely number one, the teams, right? And the technical differentiation and just the, the level of excellence in the engineering, and they're addressing a product market in such a way that you can see how that the path of that company can evolve 
Well, yeah. I mean, to me, it's, it's so obvious why you would want to empower these kinds of entrepreneurs to do that, right? Particularly at their stage. Now, if your thesis is, which I've maybe some of the newer entrants into this market may have been thinking, but particularly in the later stages, it's like, oh, you know, well, what's the next Anderil? Well, let me tell you, like, Anderil is a, an N of one. I, believe, right? I was like, just going to say that, man. And, I, don't know, and, I, don't know if, and, I don't know if that should be anybody's goal right and, now. And for good reason, and absolutely, it's because of that team and yep. its founders and, and the management, everyone working there. But, but really, it's also because of the structure of the market. Yeah. Right. And so, yeah, if your thesis is I'm going to find the next hand rule, well then, you know, good luck. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I hope you do, but I think what's more likely is you can see some of these teams develop to have the optionality of, okay, maybe we, when we hit that mid-market level, we can partner with a bigger company yeah, or we can actually go the, the distance into what is actually just another public finance, I mean, a, a, an IPO, it's just another financing. It just happens to be from a different group of investors, Correct. right? So there's all this talk around unicorns and this and that. It's like, it's so arbitrary. It's because absolutely arbitrary. And I also think on that point, right, I think the lack of prior art on defense IPOs results in this like 180 degree range fan of perspective around what's possible. And so that's what I find is I'm talking to maybe non-thesis private capital about the thing I hear all the time is like, oh, well, defense multiples. I'm like, well, are you talking about like an EBITDA ratio for like uh, a defense prime? Or are you talking about like what the market will tolerate on a defense tech IPO? Because those are different things. Right. And I don't think we've got, we really, the market sort of hasn't set in a, here's what it looks like, which makes that mid-market like way more attractive. Very attractive. I mean, so yeah, these even so people are like, oh, well, you know, the big primes trade at like three or four times earnings. It's like, no, well, okay. Well, actually three or four times, like one times revenue, yep. right? But you look at the earnings, especially over the last 10, 15 years, they're actually in the, in the low teens, right? And if you're talking about these smaller public comps, those are mid to high teens yep. of earnings. Now, of course, like, okay, as a startup or even a mid-stage or, or late-stage private company, you know, you're not focused on earnings, but there's proxies for that. Yep. You could see in the financials, particularly around, you know, look at looking at the growth rates. So that's a very attractive exit if you get in at the right valuation. Yeah. Right. And so as an investor, I mean, to us, it's pretty, it's plain as day. And that's why we're seeing a lot of interest in what we're doing, you know, and I think across the broader market, you know, I think folks for the, everything happening geopolitically, there's obviously that layer to it, but we don't plan for that, yeah. you know, and, and I mean, I think it goes without saying it's externality, it's just, an externality. Yeah. And if anything, all of this is for deterrence, right? Correct. Like <laughs> we hope to God that's the case. And so. So you don't, that's, that's not part of the calculation. And it, and I think if an investors are entering this market with that in mind, then I mean, that's, that's an extra value you can't control. Yeah. Last question on sort of the venture side, and then I want to switch to the M&A side. Sure. Cause I think that's a very underaddressed spot, especially for that sort of operating team sitting on both sides, right? Buy and sell side. You know, we talk about sort of the, the challenge with public comps and the larger sort of IPOs and defense tech and all of that. How are you seeing? You know, and I, I, I will say that 
you know, the, the sort of new entrance into defense from a private capital standpoint, I think we'll have a compounding positive impact to the market. We're sort of subsidizing some new entrants coming in, assuming sort of the market does what the market should do. There's goodness in there. Do you think that there is enough sort of capital stacked up the deck and sort of taking into account how they're underwriting most of it, right? People are living what, four to five, things like that. As you get into mid stage, right? B, C, maybe D in your sort of fundraising and you're a defense company. Do you, is that, are you seeing the latter extend that far from a capital standpoint or does it run out around B? Right. Well, I think that stage is highly sensitive to macro yeah. in the sense of what is the cost of capital? Yeah. What's the, what's the risk-free rate? Obviously now it's much higher than it was a few years ago. And at that level, you know, folks are underwriting to a broader thesis. Yeah. You know, when you're investing those amounts, you know, that amount of money and as part of a fund, you're underwriting to a broader industrial thesis of interest rates are going to go down or they're going to stay the same or they're going to go up. And, and that's how you're factoring those things in. You know, at the early stage, we somewhat have the luxury of not yeah. necessarily having, because again, we, the valuations are, are what they were, what we're talking about. But at the later stage, when liquidity is higher, that stuff, it just opens the door, yeah. right? And you are going to see more entrance into that. And when there's less liquidity, then it's definitely a steeper hill to climb if that's the kind of financing you want. But then on the other hand, if you've built the kind of business where you don't need to access equity financings, there's plenty of other options available. And I mean, Jamie Dimon said this, you know, a number of times where he's like, you know, with all these new banking regulations and reserve requirements, I'm going to have private creditors or private lenders eat my lunch. And yes, we are seeing that in the market. Yep. There are a ton of new entrants into the private credit market yep. where if you've built a solid business like Second Front, right? Where it's like, you can borrow yep. and not have to sell parts of your company yeah. to do this when you're at a C stage or a D stage. And that could work out very nicely. Yeah, that optionality is pretty, pretty unheard of in, uh, in recent history. Right. Right. And, and it, lending wasn't even that, it was just not that attractive for yeah. some of these private pools of capital because the rates were less. So it's, you know, there's always a, a trade-off Yeah, and, and that's how you optimize. I mean, that's what we talk about with our, our portfolio companies is, is what are the trades? So flip that, right? We talk about sort of the, the private capital markets. Talking about, and you've heard me talk about this a bunch. I've talked about with like James Cross and the team at Silicon Valley Defense Group is, hey, like, what's that thesis on mid-market M&A that, you know, one, looking at that as a positive outcome for founders, right? Because that's capability creation, that's capability transfer. Yep. So that's a net win for national security in the country. 100%. The economics should be in place if you've done it right, that that could also be very, very interesting. How are you seeing one sort of that market starts to take shape with all the new entrants of sort of the ISVs and these sort of defense tech companies? And then conversely, you know, you use the, the sort of you and you can look at, you know, APP there now sort of doing big sort of roll ups. I think I'm starting to see some of that trickle down and you're seeing conversations earlier at company sort of operating teams around, hey, all right, like maybe next round will be, we'll bring money in and we'll go do a couple roll-ups, sort of buy, either buy down capability development risk, buy into sort of TAM expansion. Are you seeing sort of M&A, I guess, like I said, on the sell side, be interested there, um, but on the buy side at the company level, what are you seeing in there too? Right, yeah. I mean, my, my framework for this, again, 
pretty sim I mean, I'm a Marine, right? So pretty simplistic. It's primary colors it's, only. It's a, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Absolutely. So it's about filling gaps. Yeah. And this is the question I would always ask a potential acquisition and, and teams. Like, what do you want? Yeah. What do you really want? And you ask that enough times and enough ways, you get to like, well, what do they want to do? And, and also, what do they not want to do, right? And some of the acquisitions I've been involved in and that I could see happen in, in you know, over the course of our fund and others is one great example is a, it's a, a technical founder who has built an incredible product, you know, has made a number of very interesting engineering innovations, what have you. And you know what they don't want to do? They don't want to do HR, yeah. right? They don't want to do GNA. They want to keep building. And that could be a very, there could be, that's a very good gap for a potential acquirer to fill, yeah. right? That's one example. Another might be the other way around where it's like, you know, we have this product, but there's a gap in terms of if we really want to scale, right? From whether supply chain or just capacity, what have you. Okay, well then that, that fills that. And so it's, you know, and, and that could be a number of different teams, capital structures, right? We talked a bit about products and, and, and technical innovation. So, so if you see it, if there's a team that's like, you know what, we have no gaps, we don't like go for it. You know, you don't, don't get acquired, right? And keep building. So it's, yeah, M&A is not, I mean, to me, maybe demystified a bit. It's another tool in your toolbox to do what you want. Like, what, like get to what you want to do. Yeah, it's, it's funny to hear you, right? It's refreshing maybe to hear you sort of explain it down at that simple, what do you want to do, right? And, you know, my history sort of every time I've been looking at, you know, optionality around this has been sort of equated to like a make-buy decision. Right. Like that's right. Is this something that, that we need to do organically, right? Read sort of one step or we need to own it, or it's going to build in some, some sort of like organizational ethos or a cultural attribute that like we really, really need to own. Or is it a, Hey, there's no way we're going to be able to access this market for 36 months. If we do it organically, we're going to buy this company and buy our way in. And then we're going to use that as a hub and sort of spoke out. Right. But right. those, those have been few and far between. And I've, it would be remiss to not say like most of the time, the integrations do not yield, right. Accretive value. Mm -hmm. You run into the buying part is its own sort of process. Sure. You get through that. And now you're in the, the hard sort of squishy part of like the human problem of how do I bring different cultures together? How do I look at what the operating system and the governance is? And folks sometimes. To, to sort of tug on the demystifying it. Like yep. Folks sometimes think that like, once you've done the buy, you it's wash like, your hands and it's over. You know I was like, oh, the work just starts there. Absolutely. That's <laughs> where the work starts. But to paraphrase Sun Tzu, right? Like you create success, you create the conditions for success, right? You know, the, the victorious army marches to battle. So in that way, so the deal is actually quite important in that sense of, of setting the conditions for that integration to go well is something that you really need to think through. When I was making the point of really asking like, what do you want? That, that obviously applies to, I was thinking more on the sell side, but it applies to the buy side yeah. as well. And if a team, a, a particularly a deal team, you know, with management, everyone involved is very good at answering those questions, then you can kind of solve for some of these problems of like, well, how's, how's everyone aligned? How are they incentivized? Yeah. Like who's gonna own this decision moving forward? 
you know, and those are 100% the kind of questions that need to be answered before day one. Right? 100%. If you are asking those questions on day one, then that's going, you are- Yeah, you've you know, done something wrong here. God bless. Yeah. So, so yes, but, and then it's executed, right? So it's like, again, Bamsis, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. you made the plan, you know, you made the reconnaissance and so now you're, you're supervising and it's execution. And that execution is non-trivial, yeah. right? But if you've actually done that build by, for, you know, the other framework, right? Build by partner. If you've done that analysis correctly, then the integration should be less hard than the building. Correct. That's why you bought. Correct. Right. So like own it that you decided to buy instead of build and Again, if you, the analysis was accurate, you'd be going through the process of, of you'd be in production hell, right? Yep. As, as Tesla likes to put it. So, so anyway, those are, those are some of the trade-offs. And again, it's just trade-offs to think through, you know, if you're talking about from a buy side perspective. Yeah. I mean, I think it's important to, you know, a couple of the themes that kind of came out of this whole conversation is one sort of the, the thought work prior to taking an action. Right, whether right. that is right. going out and taking on capital, whether that is executing corporate development or like having corporate development executed upon yourself. Right, uh, and, and what, if I can add one yeah. thing to that, that thought, that's a great phrase, thought, I'm gonna seal it, thought work, is that it is so profoundly human. Yes, that was gonna be the second point I made. Oh, great, 100%, right. is that it is, right? It comes down to that Singing though. from the same hymnal here. But it that really is, right? It is not, it's not a tech plus tech equals, it's you know, market per, it's not, yeah. you can't sell your way, you can sell your way out of a problem or two, but you can't sell your way out of, totally. you know, a cultural sort of deficit or a human capital, like allowing it to be degraded to a point, you've got to go build. And then what I'd like to sort of pull that together is, you know, when you talk about the execution, right? Like, like I always talk about sort of blocking and tackling. And hey, it's like not sexy. It's not a lot of glitter. You don't make headlines on it. But to me, that's the difference between winners and losers, right? Because the, right. the best tech doesn't always win. Right. The best marketing doesn't win. The best sales doesn't always win. Aspects of it are absolutely buying down sort of the risk because it's just hard to do. It's that blocking and tackling and it's the persistence and it's the very simple things that will guarantee failure if you do them wrong. That's right. Or in the sense of help ensure success with the right team. That's right. Right. That's and, right. And to your point regarding the humanity of it, I mean, that, and yes, you're not optimizing on the margin necessarily on the technical side. I'd, I'd, maybe this is heretical. I'd say even on the financial side, yeah. if you are really digging down into like, oh, well, this is like basis points of shares here. There. It's like, you know, you're probably not doing yep. it for the right reasons. That's right. Because you are going to run into this integration process and the blocking and tackling, which you are doing shoulder to shoulder with your new team, yep. right? And these are your teammates. And if you've chosen wisely, both on the buy and sell side, then that is going to help ensure success. You've got to get that culture sealed up, Pirates of the Caribbean line, right? Part of the crew, part of the ship. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. In less of a dark day, Jones yeah. is taking your soul kind of way. But. You're in different ships, but now you're in the same boat. That's right. Yeah. All right, dude. Uh, so, you know, this last question coming in, sort of a structured one, and this could go anywhere, right? We've talked, we've talked sort of the market. We've talked the private capital side. We've talked corp dev and sort of, you know, the, the M&A aspect. And then we've also talked sort of that like corporate operator, right? The ethos, the, to your point, the humanity of it. 
recognizing all that, recognizing sort of the broader sort of geopolitical, some of the market externalities we're in, if you were king for a day to wave your sword, change one thing, what do you change and why? Yeah, in this industry, and particularly because it is so integrated with with the government, right? And we have to reduce these barriers between financial knowledge and policy knowledge or strategic insights or what have it's all part of the same continuum of building a company, a successful company. And so my my thing, I'd wave my wand is when you are getting into one of these companies or thinking about it or working with them, if folks are a bit more financially literate, which I certainly, right? Like I, this is all a school of hard knocks for me, but also from a management standpoint, are you incentivizing folks through ownership as well to, to get everyone aligned with these kinds of outcomes to basically, I mean, I have this broader crazy thesis and it's just like part of our national economic issues regarding how our society has been going the last, you know, comes down to the middle class and how what's been happening there. A lot of it has to do around this fact that like we've set up both through legal and other means, a system by which we should be incentivizing ownership. And so as a company founder or builder or owner, or what have you think about that with regards to your team. Also folks who are on the team should be thinking about that. And again, this, none of this is like native to those of us who grew up in and around government or, or service. So that would be something to really take on board. I'd commend to folks to think through how these companies are structured. And so if and when an outcome like this does happen, you know, and it's obviously risk reward, but, but everyone can like share in those gains, yeah. right? And then that really, I mean, again, it's just so for me, very simple. I have to keep it in, you know, a few syllables, but it's like, it's a long game, hold the long game. I think that's, I think it's more profound than you're giving yourself credit for because like more often than not, I used to make the joke about like the, uh, the yellow ribbons and the the American flag lapel pants. I was like, everyone says the mission and the mission is enough and the mission is enough. But what I'm hearing is that alignment of, you know, shared ownership in the mission, but also shared ownership in the finances of the, the vehicle, the, the business, getting that aligned the right way allows you to sort of 10x that awesome culture and the humanity of, and really pull, extract, and scale all of the greatness that comes from it. So I think that's an awesome way to tie it together. Well, I, I need you to explain most of my ideas. <laughs> that, was, that was very articulate. God, this was awesome. I appreciate it. Like I said, I think we, uh, when we were talking about this, I think we realized we could probably go all day on this. So I appreciate you allowing us to sort of time box this a little bit generosity with the ideas the time the insight thank you so much and uh thanks to everybody for tuning in thanks for listening wouldn't be a podcast without some show notes so check them out to learn more about second front and what we're up to stay weird stay weird